Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Project MedTech. I am your host, Dwayne Mancini. If you enjoy this podcast, please do us a favor, subscribe, leave a review, and share on your network. As always, if you need to get a hold of the podcast for any reason, whether it be to get connected with a previous guest, recommend a future guest, or take advantage of our network, please email us at projectmedtechpodcast at gmail.com. My guests today are Kevin Buckley and Neil Thompson from the Tory Pines Law Group. Kevin is the founder and president and is a patent attorney who specializes in medical device, biotechnology, pharmaceutical, diagnostic, and AI technologies. Neil Thompson is a patent agent who spent many years in the medical device industry as a product development engineer and became a patent agent while working as an engineer to lessen the load of outside counsel drafting patent applications. In this episode of the podcast, Kevin, Neil, and myself talk about the importance of AI, how the Tory Pines Law Group can support startup medical device companies or large medical device companies, and we talk about strategy when thinking about IP and the importance it plays in overall strategy for medical device companies bringing a product to market, when they should engage IP attorneys, and more. So without further ado, my discussion with Kevin Buckley and Neil Thompson from the Tory Pines Law Group. Medical innovation starts with medical discussion. Talking about the future and what comes next with Project MedTech. Okay, Kevin, Neil, thank you for uh, joining me on the podcast today. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. So, so Kevin, let's start with you. Um, you know, I mentioned you're the, you're the, you're the founder and the president of Tory Pines Law Group. Is that right? Yeah, I founded it in uh, 2013 and it's just grown since. Okay. Uh, prior to that, I had uh, a multifaceted career. I was a partner in a big law firm. Uh, one of the law firms I worked with is now the largest in the world, 10,000 attorneys. Who's that? It's Denton's. And I okay. just can't imagine uh, doing a conflict check with 10,000 attorneys. So uh, happy to be at a smaller place and representing a bunch of clients in medical device, artificial intelligence, biotech, and pharma. Cool. And, and Neil? I am a patent agent at Tory Pines Law Group. And for a number of years, I worked as a medical device product development engineer more specifically spinal implants and instrumentation. And I've been at Torrey Pines since 2019. Great. So let's just do a brief introduction into Torrey Pines, what you guys do. I understand you focus mostly on, on the healthcare sector. Um, but, uh, you know, if it's not glaringly obvious, so I wanted to have you both on today, it's to talk about IP and, and patents. And, you know, that's an important first step for a lot of medical device companies. Um, and, and it's one that I really don't ever cover, right? So, so when I talk to a client, it's about regulatory and reimbursement and clinical, and then there's this IP portion of it. So, so talk about, you know, Tory Pines, the mission of it, um, and then let's get into the IP of medical devices and the importance of it. Okay, so we have a mission uh, pretty similar to yours, Dwayne, in the fact that you were, we're trying to integrate and coordinate a bunch of different meaningful fields for medical device companies, whether they're startups or big international conglomerates. And like you, 
we focus on IP, but we know that IP is also informed by regulatory considerations, reimbursement considerations. And we'll get into that, I'm, I'm sure, in a little bit. But uh, with the focus on convergence, it seems like all of these technologies are converging now between medical devices and artificial intelligence, software as a medical device, digital health. There's so many buzzwords out there. All that said, our mission is to help our clients commercialize their technologies, actually get it on the market, treating people, helping people. Uh, that is presumably the goal of all of our clients, but we have put a package of experts together in IP, in regulatory, in reimbursement, technology transactions, we grease the skids for our clients getting to market. Okay, great. That's helpful. Um, so, you know, let's talk about the importance of IP. Um, <clears throat> and, and like I said, that, that question, I'm going to leave it there. It's very basic. Generally speaking, I can ask a more targeted question, but uh, <laughs> this is really something I don't know a lot about. And I don't know a lot about of where it fits in and when you're supposed to think about it. So, so let's start from there. Um, you know, the importance as a med tech startup company to figuring out your IP and your patents. Yeah, there are a lot of, there are a lot of reasons to protect your intellectual property. And the reasons can be different between a small startup from day one, all the way to medical device companies that have been around for a hundred years and have 10,000 employees. Um, and, and Kevin, can I, can I stop you real quick? Is yeah. there a difference between IP and a patent? Well, yeah, IP is, so what they, what they say in law school is it's a bundle of sticks. Mm -hmm. And you know, as a law student, you sit there and scratch your head, like, what does that mean? But really IP is, it includes patents. You know, that's the obvious one. Trademarks, copyrights as well. Those are all obvious. But the real nuance comes when you're also adding in trade secret and know-how. And those are really interesting parts of intellectual property because they're really intangible. Uh, a patent you can write down. You file it in the patent office. It can go international. And at the end of the day, you hope you get claims which exclude competition uh, from your competitors. The trade secret, uh, this is what I like to do, trade secret and know-how. It's like bread. Trade secret would be the recipe. You can write it down, you can lock it away, you can have employment agreements excluding people uh, from seeing that recipe that you've written down. Know-how is like somebody showing you how to knead the bread. So I can't really write down how to knead bread. I kind of got to show it to you. Uh, and I, you, know, you have to show I am pressing with this amount of force for this length of time and you get the bread to a certain consistency before you stick it in the oven. That's know-how. So those are just as valuable as a patent. One of the reasons is they have uh, infinite lifetime if you can protect them that long and nobody works around you. So, uh, the, so IP includes all of these things, plus a number of other things, including licenses and, uh, and assignments and things like that. That's all part of the bundle of sticks, but patents are just a small part of that, really. Got it. Okay. Um, so let's go back to the original question. Sorry for interrupting, but that's just, that, it's a question I have. I'm assuming other people have it. Um, 
So the importance of IP, let's, let's, maybe let's, let's back our way into it. So we'll, we'll talk about the, if you could talk about the, uh, you know, why you need to think about your IP and then yeah. we can then talk about how and when. And so let's start with the why. Okay. So I mentioned that it's a little bit different between a small startup day one and a large company. Yep. And the reasons are different. And the, the reason for a small company, really first and foremost, unless you have a ton of money already, it's really to seek investment. Mm -hmm. And uh, sophisticated investors want to see at least one provisional patent application on file, which uh, gives you patent pending status uh, and begins the process of protecting your innovation in a patent. That's really critical going through due diligence with investors. Uh, it starts a process of hopefully a product lifecycle management process where you are not only patenting improvements on your first patent, but also extending the effective term of those patents. So the, the term of a provisional patent application going non-provisional, going international, it's 21 years if you include the time of the provisional protection. Okay. And that's pretty limited. What you do is you wanna keep on patenting, keep improving, filing more and more patents on the uh, nuances, and then you're going to uh, really pass due diligence. That's a sophisticated strategy. So really that, that's number one. I mean, you just have to focus on investors. You also wanna focus on acquisition potentially. So a lot of the value in startups is the patent. It really is, it's management and patent. If you're gonna get acquired, they're gonna hire you for your brains and they're gonna hire you for what you have protected in patents worldwide. And then of course, the other thing is licensing. If you wanna get royalties from somebody, you gotta be able to keep competition out of the market. And right. the, you know, the more you can keep competition at bay through either threats of litigation or somebody even seeing your patent application, if the competition is away, the royalties for your product are gonna be higher. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's really it from a, from a small shop. But then yep. when you're getting into a large company, you know, we, we represent large companies as well. You're really, it's a, a game of chess. It's okay. very complex. It's international. You want to show that you have the best defensive patent portfolio and it's maybe hundreds of patents big. And if you're going to go in a $10 billion market, you also want to keep competition at bay, but you're going to have to do it through a variety of different means. So if you don't have IP protection on something and you're a large company, you're not going to be able to invalidate your competition's uh, patents, whether it's in a, in a patent office, uh, through inter partes review, post-grant review. Sometimes it's litigation uh, in a federal court or a government court uh, and also opinion work these are just high priced items. And these are all surrounding, they're in the universe of the patent protection, but large companies use this both as a sword and a shield with other huge competitors. So um, you can imagine also that getting through regulatory, uh, if you're talking, for example, um, getting 510K de novo clearance for something, yep. uh, your patent, is part of this issue of analyzing, 
Well, do I have a predicate or not? If you're looking at how patents are effective in keeping people out of the FDA, well, the, if the uh, FDA uh, cleared or FDA approved uh, item, the product is patented, well, that's not a real good predicate device because as soon as a person uh, gets F uh, 510K clearance, but they're still infringing that patent, well, guess what? The first day they sell their product, they'll get sued. So patents are really involved in, uh, in FDA analysis, uh, even with CPT codes. If you have a patent which doesn't claim what the CPT code covers, well, <laughs> you're gonna be getting reimbursed for something that you don't have patent protection for. You're allowing competition in. So there are a lot of nuances and usually the big uh, companies think about all those nuances. You also have to think of this when you're a startup from day one. It's plan on succeeding. If you're going to succeed, you're gonna be big and you're gonna be thinking about these many years down, uh, downstream you want to be able to anticipate these issues. Yeah, that's really helpful. I've never thought of it from the from the regulatory reimbursement side um, with the patents, and and I also, um, you know, stress the importance of, like you said, having it for acquisition. Yep. But then also having it if you decide to commercialize it, because you don't know how your exit plan is going to change. I mean. You know that that's that's a moving target. I mean, everyone has an idea in their mind, but but whether they actually execute on that idea is is one thing. And being able to 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 pivot and move in a different direction is is really important for startup companies. So I think that's really good advice there. Um, Neil, do you have anything to add to this? Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, I worked as an engineer in medical devices for a number of years. And when working as an engineer, you're really interested in innovating and developing products. We're not really thinking about the IP, but once you start working perhaps for yourself, you start your own company, you have your own startup, and that's something you certainly should look into or, or really take into account because now you have the, there's the op opportunity for others to develop whatever you're developing if you don't have any type of IP protection. I was in a Clubhouse room. So Clubhouse is an app that's available for Apple users. And I was in a room a couple of days ago, and one of the and it's actually a room about patents. But one of the people that was was talking was talking about a company that he had founded a few years ago, and they weren't thinking too much about IP. Well, they weren't thinking about it at all, and so they were publicly disclosing their invention all over the place because they're really excited and about what they were developing. But because of that, because they didn't have any protection a lot of copycats came and they basically lost market share in whatever they were developing, at least wow. in the U S in the U S if you were, if you publicly disclose for, for instance, you talk about your invention at a trade show, you, you have a, a article in a newspaper or an article in a publication, you know, letting people know what you're working on. You have a year to file an application. Unfortunately, that is not the case. If you plan on filing in other countries, you basically you have to have filed at least a provisional, before you, before you publicly disclose your invention. And I think a lot of, of engineers, just inventors in general, don't take this into account when they're developing their inventions and they should, because if not, then they can potentially get burned. Yeah, wow, okay. First of all, you mentioned Clubhouse. I've, I've had three podcast interviews this week. Um, it's a big recording week and you're the third 
person to mention clubhouse. Um, and I, I have it on my list of things to look into and, and I definitely need to do that because it, it sounds, I've got the explanation of what it is, but, um, you're just the third person who said they're already using it. And I'm like, I got to get on this <laughs> and figure it out. Uh, so I appreciate that, but no, that's, that's, that's good advice as well. Um, so I think, you guys have painted a clear picture of, of why this is important, why this needs to be a part of, of every medical device company's um, strategy, whether it's a large company or a small one. What about the, the, the when, you know, well, the how, you know, how is, how do you go about even starting to formulate this? Is this something, I guess, how and when go together? Do you, do you start talking about it? You know, as, as soon as you have the, as soon as you have the technology um, or the idea for the technology, um, you know, talk a little bit about that because that's, that's lost on me. Yeah. yeah. And that's tough because patent attorneys are expensive and yeah. you, you just don't want to burn a bunch of time, you know, at multi hundreds of dollars per hour with a patent attorney while you're trying to formulate this. So best advice for a, a startup is, um, and how you do it. The best way to do it is do your own research first. So um, US Patent and Trademark Office has a, a huge database, as you can imagine, of patents to search. And that you should spend, if you're a startup company, spend a lot of time on this. You wanna find out who your competition is. And if you do have competition, and I, I must say, everybody has competition everybody we we have some clients that come in and they say yeah i couldn't couldn't find anything uh, i don't have any competition i'm the first one ever to think of this well even thomas edison couldn't say that he was not the inventor of the light bulb he was the improver of the light bulb and he patented it and it worked a lot he commercialized very well he was not the inventor of the light bulb so everybody has competition, do your research, look at the US Patent and Trademark Office, look at the World Intellectual Property Organization website. These are international databases that show who your competition is. And there are a number of reasons for this. One is, if you're gonna patent something, you wanna know what your prior art is. If you have a competitor with, uh, who published a patent application or had an issued patent a year before you even thought of starting a company. That is prior art to you. And you need to come up with some kind of a new tweak to that. Uh, it's, it's called working around. You need to work around your competition, come up with an improvement that is novel and non-obvious. Uh, and maybe we can talk about patent eligibility at some point, but it has to be uh, something different enough from your competition so that you can get protected. The other thing is, I mean, thinking downstream, what if there is an investor? The investor is gonna wanna know what the competitive landscape is. Who has what? Who's on first, what's on second? You have to know that stuff and you find that in the patent and trademark, trademark office. If then, let's just say you developed a, an MVP, some kind of a prototype of your device or software, that's really when you start talking to a patent attorney. Uh, and that's how you talk to a patent attorney. You say, I've got this MVP, here it is. And, you know, this is presumably under the attorney-client privilege. So you have confidentiality with the, the attorney. 
but you show them the MVP or version 1.0 of your software and say, this is what it does. Here's a flow chart generally describing how the system works. Uh, here's why we think we're novel and not obvious over our competition. And by the way, patent attorney, here's our competition. Here's what we've found. Well, if, if a startup does that, you have just hit a home run with a patent attorney. The patent attorney can then very efficiently take all of that information, it's law, it's business, it's science, it's technology, wrap it up into a patent application and file at least a provisional on it. And then you can go on to disclose this invention without confidentiality because it's patent pending to the investors, the acquirers, the collaborators, the licensees. It's a really powerful thing if you do your homework first. Okay, good. Um, Neil, you wanna add anything? Uh, Kevin did mention patent eligibility and early on in a, a company, as Kevin mentioned, you have the, the option of trade secrets or patents. And oftentimes you may very well go with trade secrets because what you're trying to patent isn't patent eligible. So you're kind of left with that one option of keeping it a trade secret, having people sign you know, confidentiality agreements and you know, basically telling them if you disclose to anybody, we'll sue, <laughs> sue you into oblivion. <laughs> <laughs> and Kevin, I know you said you wanted to come back to patent eligibility. Did you have anything to add to that as well while we're here? Yeah, yeah. And this is one of the, the toughest subjects uh, to, I mean, yeah, to teach in a classroom or to speak with clients about uh, there have been recent Supreme Court decisions, recent meaning within the last seven, eight years, which have really tamped down on what you can patent. So what is eligible for a patent is now much narrower than it was seven or eight years ago. Uh, a lot of people say that it's been so narrow that software is not patentable. Well, you know, a lot of people say that tongue in cheek and while in some cases it's true, I mean, if you have a mere business method, it's really hard to get a patent on a business method. But in this case, software as a medical device, digital health, it's really the convergence of hardware and software to get a patent on that. Not only does it have to be novel, not only not obvious, and that's always in view of prior art, but to be patent eligible, you can't claim a natural phenomenon. You can't claim a mathematical formula. It's just too abstract. It's an idea, it's a concept. Those are not inventions. Ideas and concepts are not inventions. So when you're going to conceive and reduce to practice your MVP version 1.0 of your code, that's really when you have to look at whether that device itself is patentable. Well, usually uh, a hard form factor uh, that is novel and non-obvious, uh, that type of medical device, an implant, patentable. It just has to be novel and non-obvious. It is a uh, machine, if you will, and that's just part of our constitution. It gets a little fuzzy when, for example, so we do a lot of work at the intersection of artificial intelligence and medical devices. And it's real fuzzy when the uh, algorithm, whether it's a machine learning or deep learning algorithm or some kind of a neural network, when it is operating in free form 
uh, training on data. Well, data is nebulous. Uh, training is nebulous. Uh, these are kind of a hybrid between a concept or idea and an invention. It's in this real fuzzy gray space. So a clever patent attorney will take that idea type thing, the concept, and claim it in a way where it's operating in hardware or it is changing the way that a computer system works so that the output of that system is what is patentable. So it's a real, it's a real fuzzy area. The cases are called uh, Mayo and Alice. There's a lot of case law which interpret those, uh, those cases uh, since they, I think it was 2012 and 2014, Mayo was 2012 and Alice was uh, 2014. A lot of cases have begun to distinguish what is patent eligible and what is excluded. A clever patent attorney will know that claiming a product of nature or claiming an algorithm is just silly. It's not patent eligible. It's an idea, it's a concept, but patenting something like a process, claiming something like a system, which involves uh, hardware and software uh, and involves uh, a new way of operating that system, those are patent eligible. Mm -hmm. So um, I, th I think the advice there is that's, that's when you need to talk to a patent attorney. Okay. When you've got your MVP, your version 1.0 of your software code, that's when you talk to a patent attorney, see how to claim the invention as something patent eligible, avoid the people who are trying to claim uh, concepts. That's okay. just silliness. So, so two, two questions. Um, the first one is, do you employ any of these clever patent attorneys that could help? <laughs> you? Uh, yes. Well, okay. So employee number one is Neil Thompson, who is sitting stage right. Uh, he's a patent agent and uh, he's a, an engineer by training, uh, bioengineer by, by education. And uh, yeah, he, he's top notch. We also have, oh boy, six other patent attorneys and patent agents, uh, as well as uh, a number of paralegals uh, who help all of our clients. Um, okay. we, we've got a, yeah, a real solid team. So, yeah. yeah, I guess I hadn't asked that yet. How, how, how big is the Tory Pines Law Group just while we're here? Uh, so I think it's 10 people now. And, okay. Uh, cool. Yeah, yeah we've, we've grown pretty much exponentially this past year through COVID. Uh, and I think it's because a lot of people are inventing right now. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's been good for us. Yep. Um, so you had mentioned um, back previously, and this is this was the third question. I forgot. I already forgot the second question. Um, oh, the second question. You know, it sounds like basically. You know, I didn't know this, um, but if you're if you're if you have, you know, something in the digital health space, um, you know, from what you're telling me, it sounds like the patent is, is a huge gray area on whether you can have something or not. Um, so, so you, you probably got to be really, really good at commercialization and marketing um, because yeah. it's not like you're going to have anything protecting that um, from, from someone else, especially like one of the behemoths coming in and saying, Oh, you can do that. So can we, and we can put it out on a much bigger platform. Um, yeah. I guess, I, I guess I hadn't thought about that yet. Cause I, I know, and I, I could be off on that, but that's just my raw thoughts on it. Cause mm -hmm. I know that 
that digital health, um, telehealth, I mean, everything in this, this space is booming. Um, investor money is flowing into that space, you know, an, an incredible amount. Um, yeah as opposed to device. I mean, there's still money in device, I'm not saying that, but, but there's just been a lot of, there's been an influx of money there from investors um, because it doesn't take as long to get to market, you know, unless it's a software as a medical device, um, it doesn't need FDA approval. And, and that line is blurred itself as well. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting to think about this space and this, this whole IP thing just makes me think about it even more. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, it's funny because some of the uh, software enabled inventions that we work on, some of them have an output, which is, you know, sent to an end user. Mm -hmm. And some of it's not some of it resides on a back server in the cloud, and you don't even see it. And that's especially true with AI. Yeah. So, you know, kind of one of the, um, maybe one of the touchstones of whether the patent or not, in other words, patent versus trade secret or know how is, is there something detectable? So if you're gonna patent this thing, presumably you wanna sue somebody to stop them from infringing your patent. Well, if you can't detect whether it's being used, it, I mean, for example, if you've got an AI algorithm and it operates on a system in the background and it's not providing any output that's detectable, well, that's something that you will never be able to find out if somebody's infringing. Right. So why patent it? Why yeah. patent that at all? That's something to keep trade secret. On the other hand, if you are uh, providing an output of a score, so if you're analyzing the data and the output is a score or a ranking uh, or a, an index of some sort or a, a shape or a color, which indicates something, well, that's detectable. And if you patent or if you claim uh, an invention providing that kind of output, well, you will be able to find who your competitors are you know, at some level. Well, if you go to the FDA, it's easier to detect. I mean, they're gonna have to get clearance at, at some level. Otherwise, you're gonna go through competitors' marketing materials and see if they provide that color or the shape or the score or the index or the ranking if they're providing that and you have that claimed in a patent, well, that's when you send a cease and desist letter. That's why patents exist. If your competition, on the other hand, is using an algo which you know does something that you're doing, you're never going to be able to find out if it's the same neural network, if it's the same, uh, you know, if they're using you know machine learning uh, in a combination of algorithms that's different than yours. There's really no reason to patent a combination of algorithms that resides on a back server unless there is some kind of output generated by it. Okay. So that, that's, really the, that's really the touchstone for us. Yeah. Neil, anything to add on that? Not particularly, although I was thinking when, when Kevin was talking, in the event that you're looking to find investor money to, to fund your venture, and they're really keen on seeing some sort of IP and, and trade secret isn't good enough for them. I mean, by filing a provisional application, you at least have that patent pending status. The issue comes across when the you apply for a non-provisional application, eventually that publishes unless you're in the US and you and you get a, a non-publication request. But if you're looking for for IP protection in other countries, the application eventually publishes. And then once it publishes, well, then trade secrets out the window because there's nothing to keep secret anymore. It's out there. 
mm-hmm. but at least within that time you have that you you you'll have that option to keep, to keep developing the the product and also to to build up the request the the funding from these various investors and you still have that patent pending uh, patent pending status and even if you get rejections from the patent office you always have the option to essentially extend it by responding to the responding to the the, the rejection from the patent office to kind of keep the keep the ball moving so that you know within that time you're still innovating you're still iterating you're still hopefully you're still marketing and selling your actual product as well yeah okay um the only other thing i wrote down from this section and it has really nothing to do well it has something to do with ip uh, but you had mentioned about 510ks right and and how and you, you talked about um uh thomas edison right and uh and you, you kind of brought up how he was the improver of the light bulb, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, with, with 510Ks, I can't tell you how many times I'm in a conversation with a client. And it starts off and they tell me how this is the newest product. It does this. It does that. It's, it's so much better than its competition, the standard yeah. of care. And then they say, and I say, okay, so, so where do you think this falls regulatory-wise? And they say a 510K. And I go, Okay. Well, obviously you're not that great because you're trying to claim substantial equivalence, right? So I, I had never thought about it from, from an IP standpoint. So if you could just expand on it a little bit and give us a, like from like, 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 you know, for dummies, um, I, I guess I hadn't thought about that. You know, with the 510K, you're, you're going in from a regulatory standpoint saying we're the same as this person. That's right. At least from a safety standpoint. Um, And then as soon as you get that clearance, you're turning around and telling all the hospital systems or whoever you're selling this to that, yeah, it's so much better. (laughs) How does that work from an IP standpoint though? Or like, it's just, it's Uh like, that's a tough dance too. I mean, the dance of that's in my world, the dance of, uh, you know, regulatory to commercialization is funny, but IP, it adds like a whole other layer. I just haven't thought about this. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, how new do you want to be? That's right. a really good question. So, so and, and it's, a, it's a tug of war. So in a patent, you're trying to be novel and unobvious. You're trying to just, you know, say, I am so different. And like mm-hmm. you just said, in, in 510K and equivalence, whether it's, you know, substantial equivalence, bioequivalence with, you know, other parts of the regulatory process, Showing that you're just as safe and just as effective uh, as something is the other end of the tug of war. So if you're, our clients have to be careful and we advise them to be careful. Uh, In a patent application, of course you want to be novel, but you don't want to diminish uh, what precedes you to such a level where you would inevitably raise safety or efficacy uh, concerns in the FDA. So it's a, it's a part of a, it's a really nuanced and very sophisticated strategy when you're straddling the line between patents and regulatory. So usually what happens is, uh, you know, there's a first mover and the first mover typically gets a patent, uh, on an innovation. And that becomes kind of the the, the sun in the universe, it's you know, immovable. Everything re- revolves around that. And then there's this dance of improvement. Well, the first innovator with a product lifecycle management plan 
uh, is always patenting the improvements, the tweaks. Uh, you know, if, if some um, uh, new, uh, let's say, bit of software uh, operates on the device a, a bit differently, well, maybe that is a system which is novel and non-obvious and worthy of an issued claim in a, in a patent office. Well, when you're looking at the FDA side, I mean, that is something that, uh, you know, if you're gonna put version 2.0 of that software, which is patentable out there, well, maybe that needs new review. And maybe as a startup company, you don't want that new review. Maybe you wanna stay under the, the same clearance as version 1.0. So it's a tug of war. How new do you want to be? And you have to be careful. If, if version 2.0 of the software in this hypothetical is just so new, you're likely going to have to go to the FDA again. I mean, this is not a, a typical update. It's, mm -hmm. it's probably affecting uh, safety or efficacy in, at some level. Uh, that's great from a patent perspective, bad from an FDA perspective. That's, uh, you have to... Um, really tamp down your enthusiasm sometimes when you're patenting something. You just want enough to pass the novelty and non-obviousness uh, parts of the examination process in the patent office so that you can also avoid uh, going back to the FDA by claiming that it's just outrageously new. Mm -hmm. Real tough. Yeah. Neil, anything to add on this one? Yeah, I was kind of thinking of, of an analogy. Let's say you have a black pen and a green pen. Now, they, they're both as safe as, as the other. I mean, you're not going to, a green pen isn't more dangerous than a black pen. And they're both as, as effective in doing what they do, and that is you know, writing words on a piece of paper. But perhaps you can make the claims that the black pen is better in certain instances. So that is an improvement over the green pen. Yeah, that's well put and makes it a lot easier to understand. <laughs> I appreciate that example. Um, okay, good. So let's um, let's talk about some advice for startup companies in the medical device space. Um, I, you know, Kevin, you start and then Neil add to it. Um, but it could be from an IP standpoint. It could be from a holistic picture standpoint. You know. You can, you guys, I'll, I'll give you guys freedom here on what you want to kind of, you know, talk about, but it doesn't have to be one thing either. Um, you know, just, but, but advice for startup companies and then to follow that one up and you can even dovetail into it, uh, common mistakes you see startup companies make. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there, there are a couple, a uh, couple things and we've mentioned them a couple of times, uh, during this, uh, during this talk, uh, you got to know the rules and you got to know the basics. And knowing the rules is uh, something, well, the rules aren't written down sometimes. And believe it or not, there's a well-worn path that isn't um, really uh, found by a lot of startup companies. That well-worn path involves you know, not only the legal, the technical, and the business aspects of getting something to market, but there's an ecosystem which involves the potential acquirers, the investors. And these people come in all different sizes, flavors, and shapes. Um, there are angel investors, which will look at a startup company differently than a venture capitalist. Typically, startups are way too early for venture capital investors. Nonetheless, we see some of our clients, they, they try and try and bang their head against the wall with VCs, and they just never get funding. 
they're too early. So the, the research you need to do to uh, you know, know the rules is talk to incubators. So business incubators are throughout the country in every city. They have mentors that will help you find the pathway, which involves uh, you know, looking at freedom to operate, patent landscapes, licensing. Then you get into the funding. You know, what is overfunded? What is underfunded? Uh, if you're in, a, in an environment, in a uh, technology that is overfunded, find out because you need to pivot right there. You're not going to get any more funding in, an, in a crowded environment. Looking at regulatory, huge. So FDA, all of the FDA counterparts throughout the world, uh, you got to know that stuff. In the United States, you have to know reimbursement. How is somebody going to pay for your technology? If you don't know how to get a CPT code or if one even exists, you need to research that because that is part of due diligence. You're going to get asked all of those questions in due diligence. And if you don't know the answers, you're just shooting yourself in the foot. And then the, the basics. Neil mentioned, <laughs> don't disclose your innovation without a confidentiality agreement or get a provisional patent application on file before you disclose it without confidentiality. Two ways to, to skin that cat. Just don't do it. That, I mean, that is you know, basic number one. Second thing, don't verbally agree to something without a written contract. People fall into what for whatever reason. They verbally agree to something and they get shot in the foot later. Uh, form an LLC or a corporation to protect your personal assets. That includes your family and your house. Just do it right. This is expected. This is what investors are investing in. It's their vehicle to invest in. Form that LLC or corporation. It's expected. Uh, don't give your IP away to a contractor. People use contract researchers and contract manufacturers all the time. If you're gonna pay them good money to develop something for you, that IP should be yours. You paid for it. You, so, you know what, Dwayne? These are all the mistakes we've seen too. Yep. So we've seen people do all of this. And, and so this, this is why we provide this. All right, a couple other things. Yep. And I'll, I'll just finish with this because uh, I'm talking too much, but ensure your business. And if you're, if you're operating in the cloud, see how much hacker insurance costs. Uh, you're looking at huge IP problems and huge regulatory problems. Uh, if somebody hacks you, you wanna see if you have insurance for that. Yep. All right, the final thing is no assholes. Don't hire assholes. You want to live your life and you wanna be happy. Uh, startup companies are very stressful, very. It's like getting married to somebody who is not your husband or wife. Mm -hmm. And you want to bring in the right people who, you know, of course, smart and they, they get things done. But really, I, of all the clients, I've been doing this for 23 years now. It's really the asshole that kills the company. It's not the IP. It's not the lack of investment. It's the disagreements that happen between people. And it happens. You have to do a lot more due diligence on who you bring into your company uh, before you actually do it. Again, it's a marriage. Uh, you want it to succeed long-term. So invest in determining who you're bringing in and then work at it just like a married couple. Yeah. So, so before Neil, before I, I, I turn this over to you as well, two things, two comments. Um, 
the the you're not the first person who has talked about the no assholes policy um i haven't had anyone and on on my current show but when i was with namsa i had a podcast and the first guest i had his name was jeff blair and he's a serial entrepreneur and i was asking him about his startup and he said the first policy we instituted was we don't work with assholes and um you know so so that was my first one i said okay that's great and all of a sudden I started interviewing VCs, serial entrepreneurs, and they all started talking about, you know, the team, building the team, building your board, um, uh, having a good environment for your company to grow in and attract talent. So then I started having uh, other people on the podcast to talk about leadership because I I started to realize how important this was, not just from a success of your company, but to even get funded in the first place because- VCs are wise to that. These angel investors are wise to that. They understand that you're, you're, you're really betting on the team, not so much even the product. Um, So I think that's great. You brought that up. Um, The other thing is you talked about incubators, incubators and accelerators. One of my favorite ones I've ever worked with is located. If you could see that, maybe not, it's the Institute for the global entrepreneur. It's out of San Diego uh, or university of California, San Diego. Um, There's a lot of medical device companies that spin out of there. And when I was at NAMSA, I did a, a, a lot of work with them um, in, with, with going down for presentations and talking about regulatory reimbursement, clinical, all this stuff, and met some really, really cool companies there. But that accelerator did a really good job of having a nice, I think it was like a 12 or 14 week accelerator program where... You know, they just introduced a bunch of, of people you might need to be a successful startup. And um, when I started at Covance, I kind of lost that territory. So I don't have it anymore. So I don't interact with them. But but yeah. what a great organization they have there. Well, and just for the, the benefit of your audience, um, Y Combinator in the Bay Area, QB3 in the Bay Area, uh, Startup Health uh, out of New York, I believe. Uh, those are just Larda out of L.A., these are incubation communities, and they, ha- I mean, they have a thousand years of experience under their roof. Each one of them has uh, hit a home run at some level in a startup, and you just want to talk to those people. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, those are just some examples of the incubators that we're talking about, and there are incubators in every city. Uh, you just, you just have to, you just have to find them and utilize them, most of what they do is just free. Uh, these people want to help you reach out and, and go grab it. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, so, so Neil, I'll turn that over to you. Um, and, and that kind of worked out well, uh, you know, Kevin with yours was the, uh, uh, it did work out well with the problems and advice are just kind of one and the same. So, so Neil, if you want to add to some of those. Absolutely. Well, the fact that you don't see me as the fact, Kevin, I'm, I'm really happy to hear that you don't see me as an asshole. The fact that I work at Tory Pines, that's that's wonderful. That's, it does wonders for my self-esteem. So thank you for that. Something that I would like to add, though, is the a company that does not want to do a prior art search before filing an application. So there are, are certain companies that perhaps feel that their in, that their invention is so novel that no one else has developed it so they just want to go ahead and file an application and then they get a rude awakening when they get a, an office action or a correspondence 
from the patent office listing off various applications and, and patents that are essentially their invention. We actually recently dealt with, uh, well, former client now, <laughs> because we, we, he, he initially thought that what he was developing was, was very novel and that no one else had done it. And we insisted that he get a prior art search done. And essentially what that is, is uh, a search of various patent applications and patents to see essentially if your invention exists already and someone came up with it. And luckily he agreed, almost reluctantly really, to the search and it came back with multiple inventions that were very similar, if not the same to what he was trying to invent. And then our initial, and then our uh, eventually our recommendation was that he not proceed with the application since it was gonna require so much time and effort on his part to overcome these various patents and patent applications that were, that were already out there. So getting a prior art search done before you even file an application to even see if it's worth moving forward with an application is a mistake that, or something that startups should really look into. Yeah, super good advice. Then that's, those are the kind of things that uh, um, to give a real world example is, is super helpful to people understand, you know, that, that it, it, how it affects them. Um, so that wraps up most of my questions. Um, but, but one thing I want to, I wanted to say is, is, uh, <laughs> hold on one second. <laughs> We almost made it. <laughs> I know, isn't that funny? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so the the I you know when I talk about with clients, I'll talk about pillars of product development, and and I always talk about engineering, you know, and that's something I really don't talk about, but that's a pillar. Sales and marketing is a pillar. <laughs> All right, you can make an appearance for now. Um, to wrap this up. So, so, you know, the, I, I was, I, I talk about engineering sales and marketing, and then I talk about regulatory reimbursement and how that should fe feed your clinical plan. And all of this end, ends up rolling up to a successful commercialization or exit, whatever you're looking for. Right. Um, but after hearing you talk and the correlation with IP, and I, I've always had IP sitting out there as well, but I just wasn't sure how it interacted with these other pillars, Right. And, and, and after, after, you know, thinking about it, it's almost like IP needs to be thrown in absolutely regulatory and reimbursement and they absolutely. each other and, and that, and ultimately ends up feeding up to your clinical plan of, of, you know, and that's, that's something too, that's a hurdle in itself can, you know, talking to clients is you have a 510k. Well, I don't need clinical data. Okay. I, I understand you don't need that for you know, regulatory hurdles, but you're going to need it for reimbursement. You probably need it. You're most certainly going to need it for sales and marketing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but just, you know, having this conversation, boy, IP just feeds right in with regulatory and reimbursement. Yeah, it, it overlaps. I mean, everything yeah. feeds on each other. And, and it, you know, the, the term holistic is overused, but the, the more that you can uh, develop a fine-tuned machine, uh, fine-tuned machine as a, your startup or your large company, uh, it, it all works together. And the more you throw together into that machine, the better your product is going to be. Uh, it, it's just um, pretty, pretty straightforward, I think. But maybe it's not. And, and I think that's why we developed Toy Pines Law Group the way we did. We have a regulatory advisor uh, in, a, in the house. We have uh, reimbursement advisors who we work very closely with. We have, uh, we've actually helped 
clients get 510k clearances. Uh, we've actually helped clients get drug approvals through the FDA, PMDA, NMDA. It's, it all works together. And if you're not integrating IP into a clinical plan, well, you're missing out on a lot. Uh, your competition is going to start eating you uh, and you want to avoid that presumably. So yeah, I agree with you. And that's, that's why our law firm integrates all of these things uh, so that we can best protect our clients. Yeah. Awesome. So, so uh, let, let's, we'll, we'll wrap it up here. Um, hang on the line. We'll do a quick download, but, but outside of LinkedIn, where I know they can connect with, with you guys, um, what is the website people can go to, or how do, how do they get in contact with you to, to take advantage of your expertise? Uh, yeah. So uh, we are at ToriPinesLaw.com. Okay. So Tory Pines, just like the tree or the golf course people know about, ToriPinesLaw.com. Uh, we're also on Facebook and uh, Twitter, uh, Tory of Pines Law, and uh, you can just uh, get, get through us that way. Our phone number, 858-869-1250, uh, and we'd be happy to take your call. Awesome. And... and <laughs> uh, uh, so just so everyone's aware, you know, Tory Pines, both your names will be in the, the uh, name of the uh, episode and, uh, you know, they can reach out to you that way. And, and uh, but no, I, I really appreciate both your time. It was, it was hugely educational for me. I learned a ton. I hope the listeners learned a lot and uh, hopefully some of the listeners take advantage of, of what you guys can, can offer. So I really appreciate it. Well, th thank you. Thank you for creating this platform too. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is the goal of it is to 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 learn and inform and um, hopefully people can pick up some some tricks some tips along the way to you know build successful medical device companies, but but get medical device products to market to help save lives and change lives. So I really appreciate it. Like I said, hang on for a second. I'm gonna stop the recording and uh, yeah, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at projectmedtechpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.